banditos. Welcome to another episode of the Dollar Bin Bandits on this Wednesday, May 18th. I am Joe Marcello. I'm Warren Phillips. I'm Mike Farah. And today we're bringing you an interview with a man who has, I would say, laid the groundwork for a character that has certainly gone through many changes over the past few years. Most recently, uh, having his famous logo changed. Uh, we're talking to none other than Steve Grant. And specifically, we got into his work on Punisher, which I will say is pretty badass. Um, you know, Punisher has been, like I mentioned, in the in the news as of late. Um, he's had a number of, you know, uh, attempts at movies. Uh, but most recently, I would say his Netflix series was just absolutely fantastic. And I think we really have Steve Grant to thank for all that work. Yeah. Besides Punisher, he also did the series uh, Whisper, which if you see it out there, I suggest you pick it up. It's one of the real hidden gems of the 80s independent scene. Uh, a fantastic writer. Uh, so many wonderful stories he has to tell about his career. For me, the one that stuck out was Contest of Champions, which was Marvel's first limited series and probably one if if not their one of their earlier crossovers. Um, and I thought that was a really great uh, book. And he also did a nice run on X, <clears throat> which was a character from the comics greatest world imprint of Dark Horse. And that's a little imprint like we uh, like to bring up of all these little, um, you know, pieces of the past. And uh, I thought that was an interesting part. But this is a uh, Mike's Missing episode. So you Mike's Missing fans, you know, big ups on this one. And uh, let's get to it. This is Stephen Grant. Cool. Well, first off, again, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I will start off the same way we do with uh, all of our guests is basically, how did you get your start in comics? both either as a fan and professionally? Oh, well, you know, I just kind of uh, kept running into people is what it amounted to. Um, originally, I was starting in underground comics in 1972 because when I was, I got graduated high school in 71. And for my high school present, I wanted a trip to the, um, for my graduation present, I wanted a trip to the Phil Suling con that was held every 4th of July in New York, because that was the time that was the big con. And uh, so I went to that, had a lot of fun, ran into people, and on the way back, including I met Dennis Kitchen there. Um, and on the way back, I happened to end up in the seat next to him on the airplane because he was going to Milwaukee and I was going to Madison, Wisconsin, which is where I grew up. So we got on a big chat there and I talked to him and he said, well, you know, if you ever have anything, come, you know, bring it over and I'll look at it because he was he was doing kitchen sink comics at the time. And uh, so I went from there and why we were, uh, you know, started, I started doing stuff in 72, but didn't get anything published for years and years and years. And he was going to publish a book I was doing. Uh, but in 1973, the Supreme Court handed down their obscenity verdict, which affected underground comics. And I happened to be in his office the day that they handed that down. So I kind of got to witness the end of underground comics firsthand because everybody just kind of shut down their businesses at that point because they're because the only thing they could see happening was having to uh, face lawsuits in 100 different jurisdictions. So, so uh, from there, I went to, uh, I took the book that I had been doing, which was actually, an, I, I had the gall at the time to uh, approach Michael Moorcock to see if he'd let me do an uh, adapt an Elric story. And he was very nice to say, uh, oh, sure, go ahead and do it if you want to. I mean, that was just it. Just go ahead and do it if you want to. So I got a guy named John Atkins Richardson, who was a professor at the university, some I think University of Illinois at Carbondale, but I'm not sure anymore, um, to draw. And he did a wonderful job. And then we had no place to publish it. So I eventually ran it through this guy that I, wait, there would they would hold one day, this is the longest winded answer you've ever gotten. <laughs> uh, absolutely not. Uh, no, this is interesting. I, uh, there, there used to hold conventions, not conventions, but sales shows uh, one Sunday every uh, every month in Chicago, and a friend of mine who who ran an antique store 
and sold uh, independent comics at the time. I mean, sold comics, the back issue comics, rather, through the store. I like the whisper picture up there. Um, <laughs> uh, he uh, he would go down there to sell comics, so he dragged me along all the time to work. And so I uh, ended up uh, meeting this guy named George Brio, who was trying to start his own publishing company. And... Uh, and so he published the Elric comic uh, that we did as, as a one shot and um, through him. And he, he had this guy who he was uh, who he wanted to do stuff with. He, he wanted to publish his work, this uh, fan artist uh, named John Byrne that he put me in touch with. And John said, you know, I think it was John said, you know, um, there's these guys from Indiana um, to publish a fanzine called CPL. And that's where John was getting a lot of stuff published. And they go up to this show every, so you should go and meet him and tell him I sent you. So I went there and met Roger Stern and Bob Layton. And then I started writing stuff for CPL. And then both of them went to the New York to become professionals. And uh, by this time I figured, well, and, you know, Roger and I would have chats and decided that, you know, that, I was probably not the best fit for Marvel Comics. And I think I kind of decided that too. And uh, then in early 1978, uh, Archie Goodwin left Marvel. Jim Shooter ascended to editor. Roger Stern became, uh, 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 Jim Shooter became editor-in-chief. Roger Stern became an editor. And when I went to New York, which I do a couple of times a year, I generally slept on Roger's couch. And this was Easter weekend of... uh, this was, uh, yeah, right before Easter in uh, 1978. And I called him up and said, hey, Roger, uh, can I, I'm coming to New York for a week. Can I sleep for you? Can I use your couch? He said, yeah, when are you getting here? I said, well, I should be there Sunday night. He said, great, be ready to write an issue of Marvel 2 in one Monday morning. And, uh, <laughs> and I said, what? And, and I brought up the various objections that we'd raised over the years. And he said, look, I just took over this book and it's 18 months late. I don't know how a book could be 18 months late, but that's what he told me, 18 months late. I, I think he was probably exaggerating, and, uh, but not by much. But uh, so I said, well, who do you want me to use? He said, well, use anyone you want. So I came up, got there and I came up with a story uh, and decided I would do just as a joke, I would do a thing Moon Knight story. And because, you know, no one's going to believe the name. So I then I then I decided I would tell it in the first person, you know, so I thought that would be a good, good laugh. And I figured that was the only thing I'd ever do for Marvel. So, you know, that was it. So I, I wrote out the plot. I went in with him on Monday morning, sat at, his, sat at the typewriter he had in the office, wrote out the plot, handed it in. He made a few notes and he handed it back to me. I typed it with the notes he went back and he looked it over and he handed me a voucher and that was it. And I thought, okay, that's the end of that. And then I, you know, at the end of the week, I went home. It was a fine week. I went up to the Marvel offices a few times, met a lot of people. Uh, Mark Grunewald was thrilled to see me because I was from Wisconsin. And, uh, and so then I went home and everything was fine for about three more weeks until I got the check. And I thought, you know, there's a lot more money than I'm making right now. And it wasn't that much money, but it was a lot more than I was making at the time. And uh, and so I uh, thought, well, you know, maybe I shouldn't quite be that eager to walk away from this. And so then I moved to New York City and s- scraped my way through. You know, since I had access anyway, I then scraped forward and that was pretty much it. But that's how I got into comics. So I was I was asked to be to write for Marvel Comics. I was actually not asked. I was told to write yeah. for Marvel Comics. So. Well, that's quite unique because not many people are in that. Yeah, I don't that... think anyone else has that story. And Yeah, and no, most people are reckon... like, I, I went to so-and-so and I had my portfolio or I walked right into the building and because you could to, could do that, that at that time. And, you know, this is what happened. And But this is uh, that was probably one of the most unique um you know yeah, I mean, getting started I, I've never stories. heard anyone else doing anything like that but uh out of curiosity, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend trying it it's no it's no now for, way to get in. now <laughs> forget it it's never gonna happen um it, what I uh really find interesting is the um the obscenity ruling you were discussing was that the, what was considered obscene as pertained to comics back then 
was that tame comparison by today's standards or is it more uh, or less the same read many underground comics okay i i well some but it was not especially tame okay the underground comics went in all different directions and some okay. of them, yeah yeah well i mean even if you just read richard corbin stuff i mean he's got naked guys running through you know literally naked guys running through through his uh stories all over the place and that that at the time would have been considered obscene you know, no definitely i could, I, I could women, certainly understand you know, huge breasted naked women i mean it's it's yeah i mean the stuff then was i mean i personally wouldn't call it obscene but i could see where it might run afoul of obscenity uh absolutely no i understand but i just find it you know obviously times change so what well, you know no, was... I mean, it was it was sex and drugs and rock and roll so okay. it's pretty much the same stuff that most people would consider obscene today if they went that way okay all right um i want to jump to something you worked on at marvel that to me seemed must have been a huge undertaking and that's a contest of champions ah (laughs) it wasn't actually really how was it pitched to you you know it's funny because somebody um somebody at a convention about a year and a half ago said you know did you think when you were working on Contest of Champions that it would turn into this big thing that it had, that it's become today? And I said, look, when we were working on Contest of Champions, we didn't even know we were working on Contest of Champions because what it was supposed to be was the uh, Marvel Summer uh, Marvel Summer Olympic Super Special, you know, in the Sp- Superman Spider Man size because Marvel was doing books then, and Bill Mantlo and I had done a um, a, a Hulk Spider Man Winter Olympics one with. Um, with Spider-Man and the Hulk. And then they decided they wanted to do this uh, Summer Olympics one and just start throwing in all these superheroes. Because, you know, at the time they weren't getting tons of letters, but the letters that they did get generally said, we want a book with every character you've ever published in it, you know, and uh, and they would get dozens of those a month, literally dozens. Because I worked on letter, I was working on letter pages at the time, trust me, literally dozens. And, um, and anyway, so we did the book and we sat around. Uh, Bill actually got to Simon and brought in Mark and I to uh, to come up with different pairings. And he also had to. We also had to create a bunch of international superheroes because it was not something that Marvel specialized in. And uh, and so uh, we each created a handful of characters and then uh, worked out the teams. And then uh, Bill took it and threw out the pairings that Mark and I had come up with and because Mark and I had gone, you know, why should we do obvious pairings? Let's do stuff that no one's ever seen before. And uh, Bill thought better of it. And he thought, well, maybe we should just do the pairings that everyone's been wanting to see. And, <laughs> which, you know, I can't blame him for that. But, you know, over the overall story stayed the same. The, the variations were different. But um, that was supposed to be the Marvel Summer Olympics. And then uh, Russia invaded Afghanistan. And Carter pulled us out of the Summer Olympics, and we didn't have a Summer Olympics. So the book went in the drawer. And um, Marvel finally got it. Now, oh, one of the things that I was a real gadfly about when I was at Marvel, nobody would listen to me to when I got there in 78, was I I really thought with what was going on with Eclipse and stuff that miniseries would be the future of the business. And I still think that. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, so I would go around saying, you know, do miniseries, do miniseries. And nobody ever listened to me. And I had nothing to do with this decision. But eventually they decided they would try the, a miniseries. But apparently the bosses said, um, wouldn't give them a budget for it. So they already had Contest of Champions done. So, I mean, Mar- the Summer Olympics done. So Jim Shooter got the idea of chopping it up into three parts and bringing John Romita Jr. I think that was J.R. Jr.'s first major job was that too. Um, And uh, so they decided, and Jim brought him in to do filling parts because it didn't quite fill out three issues. So they had to add a few pages to fill out three issues. And then it was published and uh, and it did, you know, it did extremely well because it was the book everyone had been waiting for with every character in it, uh, teaming up with everybody. And, and uh, so, you know, but when we did it, we had no idea it was Contest of Champions. I didn't even know, you know, it wasn't the name. 
somebody mentioned Contest of Champions to me when they started publishing. And I said, what's that? And he said, they said, you worked on it. (laughs) (laughs) Was was there a directive to give everyone equal time on the page or to figure, maybe focus more on certain characters or was it just there? Well, I, no, I think they were just leaving it up to us. It was a book they didn't care about. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, you know, there were books Marvel cared about and books Marvel didn't care about. And, you know, you, I mean, basically the, the, um, licensed books they didn't care about except to keep the, you know, keep to the terms of the license but uh you know i mean i ended up writing the pope book because they didn't care about it because that was just a book that you know i was expendable so i ended up with that assignment and uh and you know there were yeah i mean every company has that every company has books that they really feel are essential to their being and other books that they publish that they you know if nothing happens with them nothing happens with them no no great loss so you know and i think they thought that whatever they did with summer olympics it would automatically sell because of the connection to summer olympics so do you think there would have been a secret wars if contest of champions hadn't done as well as it did i wouldn't say never but i would guess probably not okay that makes sense i mean i think i think i think a contest of champions exposed the potential for it so you know, so, I mean, it, I think it was a logical thing to do in the way of contest of champions. Makes sense. So I, I wanted to ask about a character that uh, I have certainly uh, enjoyed over the years, and I've found myself dipping in and out of uh, various storylines over the years. But that's one of which is uh, the work you did on Punisher. Yeah, I knew that was coming. I knew that. <laughs> and check. There we go. And, um, yeah, I mean... Uh, I guess at the time, Punisher was a bit of a funk uh, and uh, you had a chance to work on it and uh, kind of bring it back up to the forefront as, as pertained to Marvel. Um, what was your goal with that? Well, that's another long-winded story to tell you the truth. Well, that's why we're here. In 1976, <laughs> at the end of 1976, I went to another convention in New York City, which was taking place uh, between Christmas and New Year and New Year's. Uh, when the offices were closed, when the Marvel offices were closed. And I told Rod, Roger and Bob were still living in uh, Illinois, Illinois, Indiana at the time, because they're from Indiana. And um, I told them I was going and they said, well, you can stay on Duffy Volan's couch. And I said, I don't know Duffy Volan. He said, well, there, he's a he's a CBG guy. Um, not CBG, whatever it is, whatever the thing was. Uh, whatever their their magazine was, and I I've asked them to forgive me for forgetting the name off the top of my head. CPL, CPL. He okay. he was a CPL guy before he went to New York himself, and now then he was working on Marvel's production department. So I uh, called up Duffy Volans, introduced myself, and said, "Bob told me I should call you. Um, is it okay if I sleep on your couch when I uh, when I come to New York?" And he said, "This is another situation." He said. Um, Okay, but you got you got to go pitch to Marvel when you're here. And I said, I I, I don't have anything to pitch to Marvel. And he said, No, you got to do it. It's the price. It's the rent. So he went to. So I got there before the a few days before the convention, and he went off to. This is the way, the week before Christmas, and uh, he went off to New York to uh, the office one day, and I sat in his living room and again typed up. Uh, Three pitch it worked out three pitches. Uh, and I can't remember the first one. It might have been something with the Black Widow, but I, I did a Black Knight pitch and a Punisher pitch because he said, pick characters no one's doing anything with. And so I came up with a story for the Punisher and I went in that that week. Um, and uh, so the next week I went in and Marv was the only one who was editor in chief at the time was the only one in the office. He doesn't remember this at all. Um, he was doing this strictly as a favor to Duffy to listen to my pitches, and he listened patient, patiently to my pitches, and he then said basically, well, yeah, we can't do anything with any of those because people are doing stuff with those characters. And uh, But he thanked me for coming in and went on my way, and I didn't care because I wasn't trying to sell anything anyway. But I liked the story that I did with The Punisher. Now, I didn't have any particular 
personal interest in the character of the Punisher and doing anything with, you know, I mean, uh, the idea of doing a long-term Punisher series, or uh, I, I hadn't been dying to do the Punisher or anything like that, but I really found I was dying to do this story. And so when I got to Marvel in 1978, um, I started pitching it to editors and pretty much everyone went, the Punisher. You want to do a Punisher story? Uh, because the Punisher was considered like the fourth rate character at the time, which is pretty much how he was being played. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so for, you know, for years and years, I went around to uh, the editors pitch. When an, a new editor would come in, I'd go pitch a Punisher series to them and they'd go, no, the Punisher is a stupid character. We're not doing it. And okay, so it kept going and going and going like that for years. And uh, then Secret Wars came along and Mike went from being a well-liked artist to the hottest artist in the business. And he was coming off Secret Wars and my wife who was uh, work, actually at the time working as, as Denny O'Neill's assistant editor, I think that it was, she started as Tom DeFalco's assistant editor and then became Denny O'Neill's assistant editor. So I forget which one she was with at the time. Said so, uh, my uh, prior to this, Mike and I had worked on a Marvel team up story together. And uh, so we weren't strangers, but I wasn't, you know, we weren't like drinking buddies or anything, but she said, you know, I've got Mike's number. Why don't you call him and ask him if he wants, wants to do the Punisher. And, um, so I called him and it was a Saturday. I remember it was early on a Saturday afternoon. And he said, you know, it's funny you're calling because I'm sitting here with John and we're figuring out what we want to do next. And we just decided we'd really like to do a Punisher story. And it's like, so then we talked a, a while and Mike was actually very, a little trepidatious about it because the Punisher at the time had all this, you know, weird stuff, you know, people, people, you know, he'd use rubber bullets and things like that. And, you know, and, and the more we talked, the more Mike found that my idea of what should be done with the Punisher was pretty much exactly his idea of what should be done with the Punisher. And then, um, then it got, it went on a, a little bit beyond that, but we, uh, Carl Potts was looking for projects. And so I called up Carl, I think I went into Carl's office actually and said, are you interested in doing a Punisher, a Punisher miniseries with me and Mike? Because Marvel was now doing miniseries on a fairly regular basis. And he was, uh, and I'm not entirely, I mean, I know he didn't have any objection to the Punisher because Carl kind of swings that way in the front to start with. But um I'm sure I was not a big draw. I'm sure me writing a Punisher miniseries for him was not a big draw. But the idea of having Mike Zack in his stable, I'm certain was a big draw because at that point they had decided they didn't have any competition. for It was an editorial decision that they didn't have any competition from anyone else. So the editorial offices had to be in competition with each other. And so they were each expected to start developing their own stables of writers and artists so that they would differentiate from each other. Um, you know, whether that was true or not, I have no idea, but I'm absolutely sure that Mike was the big draw on the project and Carl got it through and, and um, it was so enthusiastically received. I'm told it was so enthusiastically received when he went in to pitch it that Jim looked at him and said, all right, if you really want to, but it's on your head. <laughs> no pressure. And, uh, you know, and then it went on from there. But the story that I that we did in the miniseries was the story that I started out with in 1976, because I really wanted to do that story because it said, you know, it said things I wanted to say. And uh, so my my personal ambition wasn't so much to write the Punisher as to write that story. So, and he was a good vehicle for it. Yeah, it really seemed to give him more of the edge that, oh, yeah, that the character is gone that way. Yeah. yeah um, I mean, definitely more that it set the stage for the tone that it became, you know, certainly darker later on, but, um, you know, gave him that edge that, that, that character really deserved. 
All right. Well, we're, there, there's that one page that where he's in, in the first issue where he's wa- plow, basically plowing through a, gaunt, a, a gauntlet of, of uh, prisoners to get to Jigsaw, mm-hmm. which I think might have been, I mean, where he's just like knocking them, walking through and knocking them aside. And it's it's a pretty brutal page. And I think that really like nailed down the character at the time. And as a matter of fact, uh, I was living, by the time it came out, I was living in Santa Monica. And uh, I mean, I was li- I was actually living in Westwood and I, but I went to uh, Heidi Hill Comics in Santa Monica. And um, I walked in that Friday because they, they were coming out on, you know, the, Books were coming out on Friday back then. So I went in there on Friday and it was around one in the afternoon and I didn't see the Punisher on the shelf. And the kid behind the desk was just, he was like 16 year old kid, but he was like just so excited to talk to me because he just, he read, they had sold out on it in the morning with just like that. And, and uh, he said, he said, man, I can't believe oh, this. It was so great. He just goes through. I mean, I can't believe it. He just, like kills people here and there. And I looked at him. I said, nobody dies in that issue. He said, what? I said, nobody dies in that issue. He said, no. I said, yeah, nobody dies in that issue. So he like grabbed his copy of it. He sat there and he like avidly read it for about 20 minutes, like just pouring over it for about 20 minutes. And then, and then he'd like just sits up with a stunned look on his face and says, shit, I could have sworn people died. And that was pretty much everybody's reaction to the thing. I mean, they they remember it as being a lot more, I mean, I wouldn't say it's less violent, but it's less fatal than it was, than they, than they generally remember. And that was the impression that we were actually trying to give, that this was a guy who took no crap from anybody. Yeah. yeah. And that was basically that. I mean, I, I have fairly elaborate concepts of the Punisher that no one else follows, but, uh, and, you know, why should they, but, um, you know, he's, he's, his main thing is he's a guy who doesn't feel compelled to explain himself to anybody. Have you, uh, you know, kept up with any of the, the goings on of the character over the, over the years? Very little. I know. I mean, I know in a broad sense, I don't read anyone's Punisher stories, anyone else's Punisher stories. Okay. No, Um, I I mean, that's fine. I was just curious. It's it's nothing against them. It's just that I know it's not going to be the way I think the character should be handled. And I, you know, and I mean, I mean, I think, for instance, I mean, I, I know enough of him that I know that during, I think, Secret Invasion, it was, he was, um, he was, you know, doing payons to Captain America and things like that. And it's mm-hmm. like, no, uh-uh. he, he's not, a, he's nobody's fan. <laughs> he has gone through so many changes over the years. Yeah. And most recently, quite a few. I mean, he was, he had uh, powers of the guys from like one of the, like Thor's friends from Asgard. He was even uh, the ghost rider of the future. Uh, yeah, yeah, that I'm aware of. Yeah. And then, obviously, most recently, they changed up the the skull uh, logo to be a little bit more not Republican. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, you know, the character has gone through some. He's seen some shit, as they say. But um, now, I was just curious because I, you know, your your story was very pivotal, I think, in the overall mythos of the character. And you know, when I think of the Punisher, that's one of the stories uh, that I think of that come to mind. You know, well, you, you, know you know, I've got a vulgar joke if you want to hear it about of that. Of course. Please. Because, um, see, I don't I don't think I get anywhere near the credit I deserve because, you know, people always say, oh, you know, the, the whole the whole grim and gritty thing was, you know, they chalk it up to what Alan did and what Frank did. And, you know, I'm not denying any of that. That was great stuff. But. When, you know, when like Howard did his stuff, everyone said, oh, my God, Howard Jenkins, a genius. No one can do what Howard does. And when Frank did like Dark Knight Returns, they went, oh, my God, Frank's a genius. No one can do what Frank does. You know, Alan did the Swamp Things stuff and uh, and, you know, Watchmen and all that. And everyone goes, oh, my God, Alan Moore is a genius. No one can do what, what Alan does. And then they saw The Punisher and they thought, well, fuck, if he can do it, anyone can. <laughs> that was the beginning of it. 
That was, I, I mean, I honestly do think the, the Punisher is an unacknowledged tipping point for that whole thing. So, because if, if you look at Marvel Comics in particular, before and after the Punisher, there is a direct change of tone. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, that, that pretty much answered my question. I was about to say, do you think yeah. you get the credit you deserve? And, you, and for our... For us, no, you don't because well, I, I don't, I don't necessarily deserve any more credit. But in terms of historic, historical sense, no, absolutely, I, I think right. I had, I think it had more impact than it's than it is acknowledged. It's generally yeah. acknowledged because it was viewed as a lesser project, you know, by by a lot of people. I mean, you know, which is fine. I don't have any problem with that. Right. But uh, I think the imitations of the Punisher are a lot more severe. I mean. And not so much imitations of the Punisher, although a lot of characters suddenly became imitations of the Punisher, I did notice after that. And uh, but in terms of just, you know, making things more violent and more, uh, uh, you know, more action oriented, uh, you know, I think the Punisher had a large effect on that. Because Uh, people got the idea we can do this with anything. (laughs) Change anyone and make them just, you know, like that. I want to jump to Whisper. Because yeah, yeah. you started Capital, you moved to first. Right. I, th- I thought Whisper at first fit in so perfectly with the books like John Sable, you know, books that were so story driven. And did you have a lot more freedom at first to write what you wanted than you did maybe in other companies? Oh, yeah. No, I, I had complete freedom to write what I wanted. They, they, uh, they only edited me on language. Okay. Basically. Um, and that was always entertaining. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it was completely mine. I mean, it still is. Uh, it's, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was, I'll always love Whisper as my firstborn. And uh, it, it was it was a name that, that I cooked up when trying to come up with Captain America villains okay. for, for Roger. And, but, you know, they didn't own it. I grabbed it. And mm-hmm. then, uh, and then I you know, started, I think I was taking a train trip home and re- was reading this pop, you know, this uh, little paperback on on the history of ninjas or something. It was all bullshit. But, um, but you know, I mean, again, there were se- certain things that they talked about in there that I thought, you know, this would be pretty good grounds for, for stuff to do in comics. And, uh, and it started generating out of that. And then Capital actually asked me to, decided they were, Capital distributors decided that they were going into uh, into publishing, and they um, I knew them I, I, because they we all used to work together at one point and at a different distributor. They they sprang out of a distributor that I used to uh, I used to be the sales advisor for in the comics line back in the mid mid seventies. That was one of my many jobs that didn't pay anything, and. Uh, and anyway, when that those people had to shut down, but they had by then they developed this comics distribution business that uh, Milton and John took over. Milton actually went and got his parents uh, to mortgage their farm for the money to start it. So Milton and John did it. And after a couple of years, they were really successful and decided they'd go into their own public. They wanted to start publishing their own comics, too. And they actually asked me to do it. And I had Whisper at the time, but they didn't have any money to pay anybody with, which wasn't a problem for me, but I wasn't going to ask an artist to do it. But um, I knew Mike Barron, who uh, who also lived in Madison at the time. And um, I knew he knew Steve Rude. I hadn't I hadn't not met Steve Rude at that time, but I knew that Barron met Rude. And I said to them, you know, there's a couple guys who are working on comics because at that at the that time they'd done the uh, Encyclopedia Adventures of an Encyclopedia Salesman that Pacific published years later, and um, and they so they uh, I said you know you might want to ask these guys to do it because they might be interested because they're like really big uh, they really want to do comics, and uh, that's how Capital started publishing Nexus actually was that I passed and sent them over there. And then a couple of years later, they had the money to pay an artist. And so I said, OK, let's do a book. And that's so I uh, by then I had Whisper. So, you know, all uh, pretty much all broken down. And uh, yeah, and it just kind of evolved from there. So but yeah, I, I could do anything that I wanted with that book. 
Now, were there any changes from Capital the first, or was we were able to keep uh, intact the story and all that? Oh stuff? no, it was all intact. It okay. was all intact. They they never they never asked me to change anything on the stories. Okay. Which you know maybe they should have. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I, I never like I say the only things they ever got on on my back about were language, and then I'd always say, well, you know, you just published that word in Nexus. <laughs> <laughs> we did what now (laughs) (laughs) how far ahead did you have stories for whisper because i mean if it's your own creation how far ahead did you plan her future oh god almost nowhere really (laughs) (laughs) it was very well i wasn't entirely off the cuff i generally had an idea what i was doing for arcs but i never uh really you know i mean it's it's hard to say from moment to moment uh how things change you know i mean Things would change on a dime. Let's put it that way, because you know yeah. you always adapt to things. I always got more other ideas, or something else came up, or whatever. But, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, one of the projects you worked on there that I, I honestly, I don't have the book, and I, I could never find it was um, Shatter, the mm-hmm. computer sort of well, general book. What, what was the the basis for that? How did that all come? Oh, uh, the basis for that is that Michael Science was had taken over writing it to they had kicked Peter Gillis off and taken over writing it and gone off the rails. And uh, I got a call one day and said, you've got to, you've got to take over writing shatter for us. Mm-hmm. I said, why? I said, cause we need it to make sense. And, uh, and so I said, okay, I'll do that. And uh, so I wrote it for a couple of issues and I accidentally drove Mike science off the book. Cause Mike gave me raves about my first plot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, then I had uh, a character in there named Cyan in the next issue. And this was a little uh, a little nod to uh, Shock Corridor, if you've ever seen the movie Shock Corridor. Yeah. Uh, Samuel Fuller film, uh, very, very grim and gritty Sam Fuller film. And uh, I had the character of Cyan pull her hair off and reveal she was bald. Well, what I didn't know is that Cyan was based on Mike Science's girlfriend and she just went ballistic. And and so Mike Science walked off the book. Um, And so, uh, you know, sorry, no one tells me these things. It wasn't wasn't intentional. It was just, uh, you know, she was just a character to me, you know? uh, And I had to figure out what to do with all these characters. And I was just trying to bring. So, you know, I did, I think, two two issues of it. And it was just basically a Howard Hawks film at that point. I just turned it into a Howard Hawks film. And uh, then since Mike was off it, Peter wanted to come back. So, you know, Peter came back on the book. Fine with me. You know, it wasn't my character. I didn't really have any great yen to write Shatter for the rest of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what about for uh, when you take over American Flag? I mean, you're taking over someone else's project. Were you comfortable right. stepping into uh, someone else's creation? Not really, no. I mean, I, I didn't know what I was doing at the time. I mean, I, I I should have done much better on that book than I did. And I also was having, uh, was somewhat in conflict with Mark Badger on the book, which was, it didn't make it a happy work, particularly happy workplace. Gotcha. Um, you know, so I... I puttered along on it and I was, was trying to do, you know, I did my best on American flag, but I don't think it was all that good. So, uh, you know, so at that point, I wasn't really feeling the urge to write other people's characters that much anyway. So I would say, do you feel that you do better or you're more comfortable creating writing characters you created as opposed to picking up stories from established characters? Well, see, the thing is, I don't really think that much in terms of characters. Okay. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think in terms of. I mean, I, I like I did with the Punisher. I tend to come up with stories that I want to do and then work characters into them. Oh. You know, find characters that'll fit, and so in that regard, it's easier to work with my own characters. But then they also become a trap because at some point you have said everything you feel like saying with that particular character, because no character can say any character that can say anything infinitely is, is basically a, a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, basically, basically it's a shadow of a character. Any, if, if you've got a character that you can have say anything, your character doesn't say anything, you know, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. 
there's almost like a shell. And then... so this is one of the reasons that I always preferred, you know, I always liked the idea of miniseries because you could do it and get it over with. And if you had another great idea that you want to do, you could go ahead and do it. But you didn't have, you know, you weren't like saddled with a particular, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm into stories. I'm not into franchises. Let's put it that way. So, <laughs> You guys so keeping franchise, <laughs> keeping franchises alive is is uh, you know not my favorite thing to do. So, <laughs> so about Batman, go. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask uh, since we're on the topic of of you know of that, uh, what was your your time at working on Malibu Comics like? Uh, it seems like you would have certainly. Um, it was very rewarding. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, um, go ahead. What? Uh, well, no, I was. That was kind of really, you know, uh, you know, what was it like working there versus, say, you know, Marvel? Uh, did you have a lot more? No, it, was, it was great. Uh, you know, well, the thing is, I didn't work for Malibu proper. It was Bravura, which was our right. own, thing. and. You know, I got to work with Gil Kane, which was like a dream come true for me because Gil was my favorite artist from the time I started reading, practically from the time I started reading comics, because I think like the seventh comic I got was Green Lantern number nine and just went, you know, nice. and uh, that was the one that actually introduced the Green Lanterns of the universe. They had their first meeting. And uh, so, you know, it's like all these weird little characters and with power rings and I'm going, whoa, what, what's going on here? You know, seven years old. It's, you know, it's like, it was a big move for a seven-year-old. Well, the second comic I ever bought was Flash of Two Worlds. And that was a pretty big boom too. Oh, that's a, so. Uh, I'd take you know, a so getting Gil, a, a really beaten up version of that if I can get my hands on it. So Gil was, uh, you know, working with Gil was just a dream. I mean, I, I was like, the idea that I could actually become friends with Gil Kane was just impossible for me to, to acknowledge. Um, and uh, Gil and I became really good friends. And and uh, we worked, you know, the book and Malibu was paying us through the nose for the book. I don't know how I didn't have anything to do with working out the contract. I just took the checks. And uh, no, and it, it became my kill money, which was the amount that if someone wanted me to work on something that I didn't want to work on, I would tell them that was my rate. And if they still wanted to pay me, then I'd work on it. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, but we, both of us were getting ridiculous amounts of money for that. And um, which is one of the reasons of, that uh, both Bravura and Malibu went bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> but although, you know, the, the entire collapse of the industry probably didn't help that much either. So, right. Uh, I think that probably had a little more to do with it because they, they weren't entirely stupid at Malibu. So they must have thought there was some potential profit in it, at least for a while. But uh, yeah, that was another case where they didn't really have anything to say over what we did and um, did what we wanted. You know, I just wish I'd had a chance to finish it because I actually had, a, had it broken down in terms of like Jim Starlin did with Breed, had it broken down in terms of three, four issue miniseries. And since we only did three issues of the first, well, we did all four, but only three issues got published to them. And then Byron Price collected it all sometime later. And, uh, but yeah, so, you know, that, but there was, you know, we didn't have any problem working with Malibu. So. Now, did Dark Horse recruit you to come work for them or did you approach them? Oh, no, I approached them because I was doing Badlands through, through, um, Vortex and Vortex went under because they were just spent too much money and didn't and basically didn't sell enough comics uh, is what it amounted to because they were suddenly publishing all kinds of series because they but it, they, the other series didn't quite get the reception that Black Kiss did. So um, so I had uh, six issues of Badlands, another mini series that uh, that I really want to publish because I really want, you know, I really liked Badlands and I still think it's maybe it's arguably the best thing I've ever done. And um, at least from my perspective. And uh, so I had it. So I uh, just took a copy of the Xerox of all six issues and sent them to Mike Richardson. I said, do you want to publish this? And then he got back to me eventually and said, oh man, do I want to publish this? And then they just started offering me work. So, you know, so. Turned out all right. 
you know, basically, if you want work, work. <laughs> <laughs> now, how did X come about in your mind? How did you put the character together? Oh, I didn't. That was them who, who put it. I, I took it apart. Oh, okay. Um, uh, that was created by Mike and Randy and I think Chris Warner. Chris Warner designed the costume. I don't know how much input he had into the character, into the character, but Mike Richardson and Randy Stradley developed this entire line of, uh, you know, comics, greatest world, uh, later dark horse heroes, um, because they knew that the world of other superhero universes was coming. And unfortunately, what they did, and they started like years before you saw it. And unfortunately, what they did is they took too long to do it. Because if they'd done it a year earlier, they probably would still be publishing them today. Because they were just, they, you know, base, basically once Image had come, come along with theirs, everybody was doing them. And you can't come along as the fourth or fifth one, no matter how good you think the quality is. And say, unless you've got like tons of names on them that everyone's going to gravitate to, and even that's not a guarantee. And that was kind of the, the downfall of that, that they lasted too long. But they had done X in, um, they had introduced X in Dark Horse Comics. And basically what they wanted to do with X was Batman. X was supposed to be their idea of Batman. And then they asked me if I, I had actually pitched them Enemy, which at the time I was calling Patriot X. And that kind of made Mike nervous. So he um, said, could you change the way? I'd like to do this too, but could you change the name? And oh, by the way, do you want to write X? And um, and I don't know if that was just, you know, if he really wanted, I suspect he really wanted me to write X, but uh, he may have just been like trying to protect himself legally. <laughs> but not that I would have done anything, but he, had, you know, he wouldn't know that. But at least then. And uh so I uh, came out of the book and I thought, you know, I really don't want to write Batman. I want to, you know, let's do something completely different with this. They said, yeah, okay, go ahead. And I don't really think they knew what they were going to get. But, you know, I'm from my, like, you know, I always viewed the Punisher as the villain, as the villain in the story. And I did the same thing with X, that X is the, X is the, knows he's the hero of the comic and knows he's the villain as well. So, you know, so he, he's, he's not a nice guy. X is not a nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> How would he rank? Uh, I know you said that Badlands is probably one of your favorites. Yeah. Where would he rank as far as, you know, works that you've done? Oh, I, you know, pretty highly. I, I enjoyed writing X for the most part. Got a little, you know, got a little strained toward the end, but it was fine. You know. I say, was that the longest run you ever had on one series? Uh, maybe it was what twenty-five issues. So me, I don't know. I'd have to add it up, but probably, yeah. Okay. I, I generally haven't done long runs on anything. So I was gonna say, would you have? Well, actually, thirty-seven on Whisper. So 30, thirty-eight if you count the. I mean, actually, about forty issues on Whisper. So forty Whisper would still be the, the king of it. But, uh, but yeah, X was a was a very long run for me. Two years on anything is a long run for me, which one of the reasons I'm not much more famous than I am is that I've never <laughs> done anything for that long. So. <laughs> well, it's like you said, you, you prefer to do the miniseries to, you know, hit you with that and then break it into that instead of a, a long running sort of right. story, which makes sense. Right. Well, like enemy, I only ever had one enemy story in mind. Okay. <laughs> You know, if they had said, oh, we want to do this as a regular book, I probably could have done it, but uh, it would have taken a lot of work for me to work that out. But but all this stuff is coming around again because uh, they're talking about bringing back Enemy. They are talking about bringing back Enemy now. I'm currently working on a Whisper uh, graphic novel for Comics Mix. I'm going to do it for them. So, you know, all this stuff is kind of coming around. So I think it's pretty awesome. I think in, certainly in the world we live in now, where there are, you know, you're going to have a Moon Knight TV series. Uh, you're going to have, I, I mean, you know, anything and everything is possible. So if there was a well, comic book property. But I can't talk about it. So. Oh, well, then. <laughs> okay. You heard it here first. No. Um, well, speaking of uh, stuff that's being worked on, uh, you've worked at IDW and Boom Studios. Yeah. Um, 
I love those two companies because they have all the cool property, <laughs> at least the stuff from like our childhood. And they're just creating new um, new stories for them. What is it like working for them? And uh, like, you know, how does that compare to any I of these? Generally, I generally get no interference from anybody. They tell me what they want, and I do it. You know, it's not. It's it's not. You know, I, I write generally write full script, so yeah. I don't have. There's not a ton of interplay back and forth, and um, you know, I mean, I, I wish I had stories to tell, but. I just do the work, you know, I, they, they call, you know, they get in touch with me or if I'm pitching something to them, I get in touch with them, obviously, but like CSI, they, uh, they wanted me to, they thought this guy can write good crime stuff. Let's get him to write some CSI books. And uh, I'm not a huge CSI fan. I watched it now and then, but yeah, let's give that a try. That sounds like it could be interesting. And, and do they uh, give you any guidance? Like, Oh no, this is not what the character would do or. Not or really. Just... No. I mean, I, I never, you I never really had that problem because I did my research and I knew what the characters would, you know, generally knew what the characters would do. I, I don't remember any real problems with, uh, and, you know, boom, everything I did for boom, I created. So they couldn't really talk to me about that. And <laughs> no, that's cool. I mean, I mean, they I... couldn't really complain. The characters wouldn't do things that, if they were my characters and uh, IDW, I just, you know, I mean, I knew enough about the thing. I mean, I, there were a few guidelines like the, the characters don't carry guns and things like that. So, okay, that's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you know, I mean, if they, but they generally give me guidelines up front and then I go, okay, well, that's, I'm not going to veer from these. And I stick, you know, I stick where I belong. And uh, I mean, cause it's, it's, you know, it's jobs to me, you know, it's, it's right. again, it's like, not like I was going, wow, I really want to write a CSI book, but it's like, yeah, it sounds like an interesting challenge. And, yeah. Um, they, they seem like they're just doing fun stuff. I mean, they're not afraid to take chances when I see, you know, the ghostbusters meeting up with the transformers in a, in a series, I'm like, that's uh-huh. awesome. I mean, or, you know, any of those combinations, I mean, it's just fantastic. Um, and it doesn't seem like they were, they're not hampered by, uh, any type of legacy of uh, characters that came before. Yeah, no, I don't think they are um, in general. Cause I mean, I, I haven't worked on any booms uh, adaptations and stuff, but they generally seem pretty, I mean, a lot of times these days when people, when company, when film companies give property adaptation rights, what they're kind of looking for is a new direction they can go. Mm-hmm. You know, so in that way, I think they're kind of using comics as a development, as a cheap, cheap development tool. As a matter of fact, not only cheap, a development tool, they get paid for. Uh, Everything's written license, for them. You know, there are licensing fees generally attached to these things. But, but you know, um, but no, I mean, I generally have never had any, never had any real problems with people, uh, with editors coming back to, uh, I mean, it's like, I was writing Deathstroke stories for for Jonathan Peterson at at, uh, at DC for a little while because he because Marv just needed a spell but they had to keep doing Deathstroke so I did a bunch of short Deathstroke one issue one or two issue Deathstroke stories and uh, Jonathan told me that uh, Dick Giordano walked into his office because I hadn't really done anything for for DC much at that point and. Um, Dick Giordano uh, walked into his office at one point and said, so uh, how's this How's this Grant guy doing? Because uh, he, he wasn't really sure about me. And he said, no, so you, 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 you doing all right? You, into, you having any problems with him? And he said, let me put it this way, Dick. The scripts come in, the scripts go out. <laughs> that's a ringing endorsement if I've heard. Well, yeah so that's pretty much it so that, that's been pretty much overall that's been my general experience in comics um, you know it's, once in a while you, you run into stuff where you're tearing your hair out but it doesn't happen very often so, at least not to me so I'm blessed I, I mean it happens to me <laughs> is there one character you'd really like to focus on that maybe you haven't worked on yet you mean a character somebody else created? Mm-hmm. Ah, the elongated man. Really? Nice. Yeah, I'd love to do the, I always loved the the elongated man stuff in the back of Detective Comics when I was a kid. 
I thought he was a great character. I thought he was the only character, really about the only character superhero that marriage worked in because they didn't act like a married couple. They act like adventurers. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I, my, I, I tend to put a lot of stuff in my work that's very tongue-in-cheek that doesn't get recognized as such because it's very obscure. Um, so, I mean, there are there are a lot of jokes in my work. Like, you probably wouldn't pick up on the jokes in Whisper, but Whisper has all kinds of little jokes in it. But um, but they're not ones anyone would recognize. You know, I mean, you, you'd have to have very specific information to get them. So they're jokes for me, pretty much. Um, but I, I like the idea of doing a character, a character who goes around and solves mysteries and is just kind of has a tongue-in-cheek he's he's not a superhero who goes out doing superhero things he's just a guy who loves solving mysteries you know it's like that'd be a fun character to write that'd be very entertaining i wouldn't want to write him for like the next 20 years but i wouldn't i wouldn't mind doing a miniseries you know it's like and and he's a character who i he's also a character who i think has been extraordinarily um you know, misused over the years. So like a lot of, I mean, there are characters that are thought of as minor characters that tend to get misused, you know, and this has been a habit since the seventies because you just have to fill in that drama, have to keep that drama coming. So let's beat up a character who no one wants, no one's uh, published in a while. And, you know, I think there's a lot of potential there for a whole different kind of material and that, they're overlooking, and I think there's probably a market for that. You know, I think you could easily get an, elong an elongated man um, TV show if you could do the stretching. I mean, that's that'd be the hard part. It's just the special effects. But there's no, re you know, I mean, in terms of solving mysteries, hell, that's what everyone on TV does. So, <laughs> and uh, let's see who else. Uh, there's somebody. Something popped into my head a sec. Oh. A book I actually sort of pitched to uh, Dan. Do you know who Dan Evans is? I do not know. Oh, he he worked at DC for a while. He was he was working on the he was basically in in the uh, animation division, but he had some influence. But he asked me, you know, is there anything I really want to do? And I came up with it off the top of my head, which is Beatlemania, <laughs> with with all the Blue Beetles that have ever existed. <laughs> That's and just, funny. Do it as, just do it as a as a comedy, you know, as a straight up comedy. So, you know, but no one wants me to do comedy. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, we do. We'll, we'll take whatever we can get. Yeah, that'd be cool. I want to hear that. I want to see that Beatlemania. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. That's why I'm mentioning it here because maybe someone at DC will go, "Oh my God, Beatlemania! Why didn't we think of that?" <laughs> they grab Peacemaker from Charlton, so maybe they'll grab. Yeah. You know, yeah. Go for Never that. know. <laughs> um, where can fans find you if they want to connect with you? Uh, oh, uh, well, I'm on Facebook um, under my own name. You can you can look for my picture in the corner with a Randy Savage mask on the back, bottom half <laughs> of my face. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I'm I at uh, under yes that Stephen Grant on Twitter. And I'm available by email at yes, that's Stephen Grant at outlook.com. Sounds good. That's awesome. So, and uh, and I, I hope to be uh, sometime this year on all things, all other things being equal, getting back out on the convention circuit. But I've been a little uh, circumspect about that for the past oh, 24 months or so. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what's going on? Something, something happened? No. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, you know, I'm not, I'm not all that difficult to find. And we're back. So uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. This was really interesting. Um, obviously, was, uh, like many, I was familiar with Punisher, but not too much about Stephen Grant. And I have to say, it was an absolute pleasure talking to him. Learned a lot about the guy. Very, very nice person to talk to. Um, and I have a newfound appreciation for him, if for no other reason than the fact that he has a Macho Man Randy Savage face mask. Ooh, yeah, brother. Yeah, it's hard to believe there was a time in the world where the Punisher was a minor character that nobody wanted to touch. Um, but he, like he said, he said he wrote a story and he was looking for a character to put in it and he picked the Punisher and, you know, it got some shrugs from people. Like, all right, if you really want to use that character, but look what it's become. 
Great interview, guys. Uh, really was interesting to hear about the origins of that Punisher miniseries, which kicked off all of the other ongoing series and all of the other media appearances. So uh, love to hear more from Mr. Stephen Grant. Sorry, I missed this one. Uh, but that'll do it for this episode of the Dollar Bin Bandits. We will see you on the flip side. Peace. The Dollar Bin Bandits are Oren Phillips, Joe Marcello, and Mike Farah. New episodes release every Wednesday and Friday. You can find us on all of the socials at Dollar Bin Bandits on Facebook and Instagram, at DB Bandits on X. For more super nerdy discourse, join the Dollar Bin Banter group on Facebook. You can email us at dollarbinbandits at gmail.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you found this episode. It's the easiest and most helpful way to grow the show. Looking for merch? Search us up on TeePublic. And if you want to support what we do, smash that support button on our website, dollarbinbandits.buzzsprout.com. Thank you to Sean McMillan for our graphics and Pat McGrath for our logo. Thank you to our friends at Tomorrow's Publishing, T-W-O-M-O-R-R-O-W-S.com. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, banditos.